Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This week on Twip, Nikon evolves its flagship camera, continuous lighting, killing the strobe, and guest Chris Orwig talks inspiration and creativity. All that and more on episode number 112 of This Week in Photography. And welcome back to another exciting episode of This Week in Photography. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, we have Mr. Alex Lindsay in the uh, control room in Twit Cottage. Hey, Alex. Hey, how's it going? It is going great. You know, this is a little, this is a little disconcerting me hosting from San Jose with you, you know, there in the control panel room with the power and all that. So let's see how this I goes. Like to call it, I like to call it the uh, power of technology. Yeah, you have the power to switch the camera off of me at any time. <laughs> As if. And also we've got, <laughs> I saw that, Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron, how you doing? Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Listen to that mic. It sounds Yo, awesome. My new mic. Is this thing on? Yeah. It's on. And you got some swanky, are those Beats by Dre headphones you got going on there? <laughs> no, these are old uh, 8KGs from, uh, I'm thinking, a couple decades ago. Very cool. All right. Well, we're, we're big time now. We got real gear, you know, and, and real hosts to go with it. So uh, <laughs> we're, work, we're still working on that part. <laughs> yeah, we're still, yeah, yeah, I know. Hey, leave me alone. Uh, a quick nod to our sponsors. Uh, we're brought to you today by Squarespace.com. They're a fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. If you'd like a free trial and 10% off your new account, head over to Squarespace.com forward slash twip and enter the offer code TWIP. Also, we're brought to you by Audible.com. They're the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. If you like a free audio book of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash twip. Lots of free stuff for the twip listeners. What's going on with that, Alex? Ah, uh, You know, we're working on it. You know, <laughs> That's awesome. Need more. More free stuff for the twip listeners. We're, we're, um, <laughs> that's all I got to say. You got, things, you got things brewing, right? We're brewing. We're brewing stuff up. What's in the news? In the news, Nikon. Oh, Nikon has released the D3S with 102,400 ISO. This is now getting insane. I love it. I love it. This is insane. That's like saying I have a bazillion gazillion ISO on my camera. (laughs) I don't don't even know. Like when you're at the 100, 200, 400, 800, you know, I can kind of gauge what that means in terms of the kind of shots I can get and what I can't. When you're in the 100,000 range, you know what, I have you know no what I idea. Think? At, at 100,000, we're getting close to the point that if you take a picture in a black hole, it's good lighting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it takes pictures of things before they happen, basically. Yeah, exactly. right? <laughs> I, I should make, make the point that you know, an ISO is a doubling in uh, brightness, so it's pretty easy to get to big numbers when you start doubling. So that's about three stops over the 12,800 that we've been seeing at high-end cameras. 
Yeah. Still. Have we seen any images from that? Because I, I looked and I couldn't find any. I, they, they posted some images, uh, but not of those super high ISO settings. They posted some images at uh, like 12,800 off of that camera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they look good, but I mean, you're, you're still starting to see noise, so I'm curious to see what those ultra, ultra high ISOs get. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there'll be noise, the but still. Isn't the, isn't the issue really, I mean, you can say anything, right? You can, you can, you can just, all you're doing is gaining the image, at the mo- yeah. you know, for the most part. Well, that's the question, right? I mean, it, it, the, these expanded settings do sometimes play tricks with just brightening up the data that's coming in, but you can only do that to a certain extent. And, and you know, I don't think, I mean, no camera manufacturer is going to set an ISO that's so arbitrarily high that the, the image is completely unusable, I would think. Well, but I would say, though, but I, I would argue that the, the settings we see on a lot of point-and-shoot cameras that are 1600 ISO, the 1600 ISO is not usable. Uh, agreed. I, I agree, but I, th- I think there's, there's some kind of a standard that uh, Canon and, and Nikon would sort of adhere to. I mean, nothing formalized, but right. you know, some sense that it, you know, if you're going to claim that you can shoot at you know, 100,000 uh, ISO, it's got to be somewhat usable. Right. Yeah. And Ron, you know, your, your argument from many, many months ago has been that the megapixel wars need to be over and that we need to be moving towards the, the high ISOs and more sensitivity and clarity. Yeah, on I the love sensors, the ISO right? wars. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's... Yeah, uh, so now we're in the ISO wars, but now it, it, that question is going to come up. Is this a real number? And and does it make sense to go that high? You know, I, I'm happy. You know, I'm happy that they're, with, they're, they're going that high. Not that I can afford $5,000 plus to replace the D3. But, yeah. you, know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm happy that, they, that they, they're going down the route of just kind of refining the sensor and making that much more usable. You know, because 12, 12. 12.1. 12.1 is fine for me. Yeah, and that, that's really my complaint with that new Canon 7D is I'm really kind of annoyed that they went the route of upping the megapixels as opposed to upping the uh, the low light capabilities. I would have bought it in a heartbeat had they, you know, managed to match the the 5D's kind of low light capabilities. But it's not there. It's just higher megapixels. It's got a lot of cool stuff on it. But yeah, some of that cool stuff is uh, of course the extended ISO range. Um, they've got a 1.2x crop mode. Um, they've got. Uh, See, this is, is cool. I like that. They're, they're doing this this thing where I knew you'd like that. I knew you'd like that for some reason. <laughs> well, it's just it's, it's smart use of the technology, right? There's all these little things that you know you kind of can do that these camera yeah. manufacturers haven't necessarily built in. And so this is basically let me shoot uh, a smaller portion of the sensor, which means I can shoot. Uh, I mean, it gives you a crop factor, but the real reason to do it is it's less data coming through, which means you can shoot faster. You can get a right. higher frame rate off of it. But the big the big thing for this camera, there's a bunch of other uh, uh, other enhancements that you know the Twip listeners can go check out on the uh, on the Nikon site. But they added video, 720p video to this uh, in the motion JPEG format. And I know there's somebody that's on the show right now that has something to say about that. <laughs> Alex, what do you think about that? Well, they had to. I mean, that that that's the whole. Um, you know, you can't release. Uh, you can't release the thing without without doing video. I mean it, that, and I think that we're we're seeing the final steps of this convergence that a lot of us have been talking about for a couple of years now. Is that now you have the highest end cameras having the video? You had every other camera having video. I don't think I don't think you're going to see a camera released without video in it uh, a year from now. I, I think it's, that, it's interesting they did not go to full you know 1920 HD. Yeah. It's only 720p. Which I think is, I actually think is reasonable. I mean, I, it, it's nice to have uh, 1080p, um, and if it looks sharp, that's great. I think what they realized was is that a lot of people can't 
really see the difference. You know, for the most part, I think people, uh, I, I think that a lot of times these resolutions get uh, are a little um, oversold. So uh, you know, the, the, sure, but don't, don't you think that's going to hurt them a little bit? Don't you think there's going to be some it's concern the perception, that, right? It's yeah. perception wise, absolutely. I don't think that in, canon, in, right? I think the reality is if you get a good 720p, it's going to look as good as 1080p uh, on a lot of these because a lot of them are getting compressed really heavily. Um, you know, the question is, did they? purely just get a smaller file or do they use the same size file on a slightly smaller image uh, resulting in a little less compression so that's the you know because i know that one the other thing you get into is is the rolling shutter becomes a lot less apparent at 720p than it does at 1080 i know that when you look at like the rebel the the canon rebel uh when you set that thing up to 1080p on top of you know kind of a weird frame rate uh the rolling shutter becomes very apparent um, in the 1080p and much less apparent in the 720p. So, um, so I think that I, I mean I'm happy that they got 24 frames a second. You know, mm-hmm. I think that that was uh, that was important. Um, it's it is. Um, uh, I think that's that's a good piece of it. The 720 might hurt them. Um, I do think that it, at the price that they're they're going at, they really are going after the serious photographer and um, you know who needs to have video incorporated into the. I think this is the first step. Of what we're I, think this, I think it's a good point, right? You know, they're not trying to position this camera as a solution for uh, shooting full-on video, at, you know, as a primary video camera, which I think is, is different than what some of the Canon positioning is, where they're sort of claiming that it is a true, uh, you know, camera that can do both. Whereas, I can't think do that, even- though. I don't, I don't know that they can do that because <clears throat> I'm being de- playing devil's advocate because I think Canon is leading clearly in the video space, and they're setting the bar in terms of what consumers photographers are expecting when when you say video is in my digital slr so i think i i personally think it's going to hurt nikon i'm i'm happy with the camera and i you know i think it's a great camera but i think it's going to hurt them from a marketing standpoint because you know you have these people not everybody is as is in the weeds of uh with this stuff as alex is and knows what all the widgets and dials and parameters and settings are if you have just an average photographer that's just looking at numbers hey that number is bigger than this number then they're going to say, well, hey, they don't have that bigger number, so I'm not buying this body. So that's, that's you know. Yeah, it's, it's, yes, there will probably be some less informed people or people that just have different needs. I mean, it's, it's valid to say that certain people are going to need to shoot, you know, the highest resolution HD, the uh, uh, 1920 by uh, 1024 kind of resolution or 10A yeah. resolution. But, you know, I think uh, I, I'm pretty sure that Nikon actually said that this, is targeted at photographers who also will be shooting some video footage as sort of a supplement. Well, and I think that the issue is is that at, at the price point that they're going at, I, I have to admit, as someone who owns two 5Ds with two 70s on, on order, <laughs> um, the, uh, um, uh, the issue is, is that when you get to that price point at $5,000, you're now so close to an EX-1, Regardless of how much I like the depth of field or the or the light sensitivity now, I mean that's a really expensive uh, video camera. You know, I mean, or not really expensive, but but it's you know it 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 is for the very very serious uh, photographer um, who needs to because I think a lot of photojournalists and, and you know a lot of them have talked about the need to be on be when they're somewhere. Um, they don't have the same crew they used to have, and they need to pick up some video to add to what they're doing. And I think that that's the the real uh, challenge there. I do think that um, one of the things I'm going to be interested to see with the D3S 
um, is one of the things that Canon's not doing, and I haven't, you know, we haven't had the opportunity to test the 7D. We will soon. But with the 5D, one of the problems um, that we run into, and it looks great, uh, it's a really an amazing video uh, quality for what it does. But one of the issues is, is that it's obvious that what the 5D is doing is subsampling um, the, C- or C- the CMOS sensor. So what they're not doing is capturing the whole image and then and shrinking it down, down to 1080p, yeah. which would look amazing. I mean, if you look, if you think about what, because all the grain would be gone. You know, it would be mm. it would be an amazing image uh, that would be easier to compress, so on and so forth. It would take CPU power to, but I would I'd pay an extra thousand dollars for the camera if they would do that. The but the problem, what they're doing is they're grabbing every other or every third or every fourth pixel and bringing mm-hmm. it in. And how that, what that results in is a aliasing. So if you see uh, high contrast straight lines, you will see some aliasing in the five D footage um, that isn't, uh, you know, that wouldn't be there if you were if you were oversampling and, and the- yeah, it's just exactly the same thing of, of all these other numbers right you can toss out numbers you know till the, till the cows come home but unless you really understand what's going on behind the scenes uh, you, you just got to be really careful that you're not being sucked in by marketing numbers without understanding what's behind it so you know something that's shooting you know hd or 720p or whatever uh on a, on a camera like this is not necessarily the same thing you get on a dedicated video camera yet and right. uh, I think there's, there's there's definitely education to be going on there. Yeah, um, and hopefully the next the next thing I'm hoping at least personally the next thing from Nikon will be an upgrade to the D700 line, which will be yeah. presumably and that, the honestly, D700S, that's, that's kind of what I'm right? For too. Yeah, well, that's actually kind of what I'm waiting for too. I think that uh, you know Canon's kind of fired their shot with the 7D, and uh, I'm waiting to see what the next sort of you know slightly lower level uh smaller bodied uh, Nikon is in in the same sort of range and you know if they came out with an update to the the D700 that had this kind of ISO capabilities I think that's probably going to be my next camera yeah i, I got a, yeah. i got a question for you there's um there's a, a couple of, th- of other features on this getting back to more of the pure photography side of it one of them is the just to make a point it's interesting that they say that the contrast uh, detection autofocus, that the autofocus that you get when you're doing live view has been sped up by 30 to 40%, which is just a nice mm-hmm. little thing. But do you know, it says there's an expanded retouch menu. And I mean, are the Nikons starting to feature retouching stuff in camera, or do you know what that means? You know what? Uh, I don't know what that means, uh, personally, because I, you know, honestly, I never use any of that stuff in my camera. It's it's just, you know, I shoot and I import raw files with no JPEGs and I go from there. I don't do any in-camera processing or yeah. retouching or, you know, I know some photographers uh, will shoot and, and have the camera in black and white mode, even though they're shooting raw so they can previs what the image is going to look like. I just have never used any of those those creative settings on any of my cameras, point and shoot or otherwise. I so, have to. I don't know. I have to admit that I, I find that my my preview screen is so far off um, on my on the five D that uh, I I just I make sure that I have the the um, histogram up all the time. You don't know what. What I'm do you seeing. mean the preview? The the color balance is different from what you see when you import the brightness. It to the- like things look. I was shooting. Um, I had kind of a, a scary. Uh, well, I had a couple scary moments. I was shooting out of a helicopter in Brazil, and um, uh, in addition to almost falling out of the helicopter, um, the uh, uh, I the more the thing that I was more upset about than falling out of the helicopter was, or, or almost falling out, was the fact that I thought I might have taken a lot of photos overexposed. Um, yeah. You know, I was trying to play with all these settings, and you're you know you have a half an hour, and you're in a plane, and you're ra- you know going around, and the doors open, and and I didn't quite get the settings quite right while I was going, and when I looked down at the um, the camera, my upset was that it looked really blown out. When I brought it back into Photoshop, it was fine. 
You know, I mean, yeah. it was you know the, all the, all yeah. the data was there. Now, part of that is the is the flexibility that I got with you know what I was looking at is the Shigeru. yeah the raw the raw is you know was there all the data was still there, which was like pretty it. amazing. But it was a uh, um, but it was a, it, that was a scary moment. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I regularly. I was going to say I, I regularly shoot with my camera set you know, when I'm doing outdoor photography set uh, with a bit of overexposure on it, just knowing that I'm going to be able to pull that stuff back from the raw headroom. I just got back from a week of hiking in Utah, and uh, my camera was for almost all the whole time set to just overexposed by about two-thirds of a stop yeah. just because I know there's data in there. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and well, you know, nice an, an interesting thing about post-processing, though, I don't know um, which pro- post-processing engines you go, or programs you guys are using, but in Lightroom, uh, Lightroom 2, when it came out, they introduced a feature called camera profiles where you could go in and say, you know, here's you could even tie it to specific serial numbers of specific cameras because you know this particular D seven hundred shoots contrasty or whatever. So you could dial it in so that what you see when you import the image into the application matches what you see that the camera has rendered as the JPEG on the back of the LCD. So it's uh you know it just takes it that level and it would that feature Alex would sort of eliminate your issue of not seeing the same thing when you import as when you're shooting and that's uh, well, a lot of photographers had that issue i don't want to see what i didn't i didn't want to see what was in what what i was uh, seeing in the camera because it was terrifying <laughs> so, well, I think that, that's actually the problem that i have is that i wish the cam i'm pretty sure the cameras show you you know what the jpeg processed image is going to look like which is actually uh not taking advantage of what's in the headroom i would rather have uh, a mode on the back of the camera that lets me sort of dial in a, a correction or, or shows me, at least on the histogram, shows me the real full range of what's been captured in the RAW file, not the JPEG equivalent. Because right now yeah. I'm sort of guessing as to how much headroom I'm going to be taking advantage of in that high end. One, one what of were, what about, were you shooting with on your hike, uh, Ron? Uh, my, my 40D still, Canon 40D, which was, uh, we, did, we did this long hike in uh, Zion National Park uh, called the Narrows. It was about a 16-mile hike uh, through this just incredibly deep valley, sheer cliff walls on both sides of you. And you're walking down the middle of a stream through most of it, and it was cold. And um, so I'm holding my camera up. And there were places where the water was up about to waist deep, and so I'm kind of holding my camera up trying to, trying to get through that. And you know, occasionally, as the water goes from you know, uh, mid-thigh to uh, waist deep, uh, there's that moment of, it crosses a certain boundary and your voice changes. And um, <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> that was a good way of putting it, Ron. Very, yeah. very eloquent. I like that. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I'm, you know, I'm hiking along on this uh, rather treacherous terrain. Cause you're, you know, you're in the water, so the mossy-covered rocks you're trying to get there. And I'm holding my camera up, just hoping I don't manage to stumble or twist an ankle. Oh, uh, yeah. And look out fun. for the leeches and all that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it was good. It was good stuff. All right, a quick nod to our sponsor again, uh, Squarespace.com. They are a, a quick and easy way to build, host, and manage your website. They've got an easy-to-use user interface for creating and managing your website or blog. They're optimized for, for both beginners and CSS experts. They've got hundreds of design templates to choose from, and you can customize any of those designs to fit your needs. So use it. And a quick reminder that uh, that you know the Twip log when you go up to twiplog.com, uh, that is uh, a Squarespace example. As is, you know, uh, we're rebuilding almost all of our front, all the front ends for almost all of our sites are being built in Squarespace. It is, it is, you know, it's not just a sponsor. It's a uh, um, we use them uh, very, very heavily. And you're using them for your personal blog as well, right, Alex? I am, yeah, which is um, you know starting and stopping. I keep on thinking about it. It's not a cobweb blog yet. It's a cobweb blog right now. I. <laughs> 
I tried. You know, I tried to get ahead, and the production has been a little um, more yeah, exciting the, than the I real expected. world. Real world has uh, tends to interfere with blogging. I've found. You know, you know, that's the. I think that's part of the part of the challenge is uh, is that you know it. You know, when it's not when it's do you're doing something for fun, and then you have a lot of stuff for work, it it gets a little hectic. So, but you know what I found, I, I have the same issue. But uh, the, a feature uh, that you can use, and I'm pretty sure Squarespace has this feature as well. But you can write a blog post and then time it to go live at a certain point in the future. So you could sit down, you know, in front of the TV, Alex, and write 15 blog posts and have them queued up for 15 weeks in the future or 15 days and then be done with it. It's the writing part that's the problem. (laughs) It's not not the timing part. It's not that I I have to do it at a certain time. Um, You know, we have so many projects going through right now. Almost my whole day is almost meetings and thinking. Like it's not – I don't have a lot of uh, downtime. When I get home, I have a um, a 23-month-old son who is usually pretty excited that i'm there and ready to wrestle so sounds like you need a virtual assistant uh yes someone to write my post for so by the way quick quick reminder uh, squarespace.com slash twip is where you want to go um yeah to set it up you don't need a credit card you can just try it out uh you can use the offer code if you decide to get it for 10 percent off that's uh and use dtwip but definitely go up to squarespace.com slash twip and continuing on in the news, Canon has posted a firmware update for that new 7D that Alex does not even have in hand yet. Not that I'm bitter. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? How come you don't have it? I, I got a little behind. You know, we, we weren't sure what we need. What happens is, is with us, with cameras, is that we buy them when we have a job that pays for them. So, so what happened, we got 5Ds because we had a client who, uh, you know, really wanted to shoot on those, really wanted the short depth of field, really wanted that kind of small package uh, for what they were doing. And so, so the jobs that we got um, paid for the cameras. Uh, we wouldn't have, you know, gone crazy with them otherwise. Uh, we would have, you know, I probably would have just kept on putting it off. Um, so now we have a job coming up. Uh, it's not a dire rush. We, it's in November that we that we need the seven Ds for. So um, the the client wants to have that short depth of field or short ish depth of field, but in addition they want they really want the twenty four uh, frame per second. So so we're um, so we're you know putting together a package for them to to do that, and uh, or a couple packages uh, one two teams with uh, each with a seven D and some lights and mics and stuff like that. And so now, now do you do you give the client all that gear when the job is over? No. <laughs> what are you crazy well it doesn't and it doesn't pay for the the, the job doesn't pay for it completely but it pays off enough you know there's enough of it's a big enough job um that that it makes sense to have the cameras t- to do that and um and it, you know it's this it, we, we have this kind of crazy thing at the office now because we have a a 950 for the next month we've got a red sitting in the, in the office as well as two ex1s and an ex3 so those are like our kind of eng cameras and then um and then we've got these two 5ds and we have two four 270s and then we still do witness cameras and stuff like that with the little hv20s and and stuff like that so there's just like this you know we're constantly fiddling um fiddling with cameras so am i uh next thing in the news you know uh on the show we talk a lot about or in the past we've talked a lot about convergence and the whole video and still mixing and merging and what, where all that stuff is going. Um, but Roger over at lensrentals.com has a blog post up about how it, uh, how convergence, uh, the convergence of still and video relate to lighting and what the new challenges are for photographers that are making a jump into that world of what they need to pay attention to. So I think it's a, it's a really good piece, and he's a really good friend of TWIP. And uh, I think he still has a discount for our TWIP listeners up there, so 5% off 
of uh, anything from that store when you rent. And he's just doing that out of the kindness of his heart. So hey, his, uh, his, well, I, I just wanted to say, you know, he, his point in particular is that strobes are he's predicting. And, and I actually agree with him that strobe lighting is going to go away or, or certainly be diminished by a great extent. Uh, and then you're going to see this continuous lighting scenarios become more and more common. And uh, part of you know, part, part of his convention is because, obviously, if you're shooting video, you can't use strobes. But also, I think just generally the technology is getting to the point where, I mean, shooting with continuous light is just so much more intuitive than trying to shoot with strobes, where you have to set everything up, and then you have to take the picture, and then you sort of have to see what you get or to try to meter it. And it's... Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree that you know some of these cool like light panel stuff and this cheap lighting is is only going to make shooting with uh, without strobes and just using continuous lighting a lot more common. That's the operative word, I think, uh, it, it being cool. Because I did a shoot this weekend, a product shoot, and I used continuous lighting for it through soft boxes, and it got hot in that room. Yeah, but, you, but were you were you shooting incandescents or were you shooting fluorescents or, or LEDs or? These were incandescents, which were cheaper yeah. to rent, so it exactly. was. Uh, you know, so it's a it's a price issue. So it was <clears throat> I would have gotten the the fluorescence or the uh, the LEDs if I could have afforded to rent that. But you know, it was forty bucks to rent this set. So right. I figured, you know, it's not I'll get some yet. water. It, yeah, <laughs> I'll it, buy it a couple of gallons yet. of water and get the cheaper lights. You know, sure, well, sure. And 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 Fred, you have to call us. I mean, we, we've got a couple of things laying around. I mean, you know, just, oh yeah, that's say, true. We've got you know we. <laughs> Because we, we have the same issues. We've pretty much eliminated. It was so funny. Someone came and interviewed me, and we were grabbing stuff to just kind of put behind me. To, you know, they were, it was some documentary crew, and they wanted to make, make it look nice. And yep. um, we pulled out these Aries, you know, these, these big incandescent lights. And I was like, where did you find those? I mean, what, what, were, we, what were we doing with those? And they were like, oh, they're back under some pile. Because we just don't, you know, we don't use that anymore. I mean, we, we uh, really moved it's away real. from, uh, you know, using anything that generates heat. And more importantly, anything that generates, that requires a lot of power. And yeah. to us, you know, uh, you know Kenef, using divas are kind of the, the minimum. Um, and and it's, it is, it's a little bit more expensive to rent them. Uh, but you know the great thing is is that even with the kinos, you end up with a lot of power and, and and you get into this kind of gradation of you know the LEDs are great that 's what we 're lighting this set with right now um, but the but they are very very expensive but that that those prices are coming down pretty quickly. Um, the kinos are a lot less expensive for the power for the you know for the actual uh, lumens that you 're you know getting out of the out of the uh, light. Um, but I do think that I think you're, I think it's absolutely right. I think the thing with strobes was is they were able to build up a, a charge without using a lot of wall power. Um, yeah. That's the big issue we run into lights more than heat is that you start putting a lot of lights in there. You need something to be really bright, and you start blowing out all the circuits in a small facility. I mean, you need to have you need to go over thirty amps, you know, to be able to manage a lot of incandescence, and um, and so that's a. But it is for raw power, you know, it's still we're still in a situation where. Uh, you know the incandescence followed by kinos followed by these LEDs are the kind of the the mix of it. Yeah, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, Ron, do you think? I, I think there's. I don't think we're going to see a flip from strobes, and I'm not going to sell my 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 SB 900s and and move into continuous lighting because there's so much stuff that I can do with the SB 900s from positioning them in remote places to doing all this kind of crazy stroboscopic stuff. Um, you know, all that stuff is still possible with strobes, and I don't, I don't see strobes going away anytime soon. But yeah, I think for the people that are shooting, that are switching between video and still, or if you're doing still lives like I was doing, you know, that kind of stuff, then yeah, def- definitely continuous lighting is the way to go. 
Yeah, but if you've ever shot in the studio, you know, even still photos with uh, continuous lighting, God, it's just so much nicer. You just sit there, you dial it in, you can see what, you know, if you're shooting yeah. portrait stuff, you can see what your key to fill ratio just looks like as opposed to sort of, you know, I mean, if you get really good at it, obviously it, it becomes intuitive. But for somebody like me that hasn't done all that much studio photography, it's just so much easier to have a continuous lighting setup. And um, it just seems to give you a lot more flexibility. And I, LEDs are going to be the key to this, though. These yeah. little LEDs that, you know, are getting cheaper and cheaper and just bright as hell for these little things. Um, I, I think at some point, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, what, you know, we should start making predictions at what point will uh, cameras start to have just bundled LED continuous lights built into them as well, opposed to the, the little flash. Well, and the other thing is, is that the, uh, is when you, when, as the ISO and, or the sensitivity of the chips become um, a lot better. Uh, yeah, you know the the issue that you get into is is that you're really only talking about quality of light, not quantity of light. And as yep. soon as you get to that, you don't need a lot of a, a lot of light. You you can really have a one by one LED with uh, maybe a, a, something else to kind of kick it, and, and you just need it just enough to get the values that you want, or the ratio, or the contrast that you're looking for. But you're not worried about dumping a lot of light onto it because you don't need to do that. Yeah, exactly. Now, I think it's a great point. You're shooting at you know ISO 102,000. Uh, you can get away with uh, having some LED. You can get away with you know, holding your iPhone up to the well, I mean, subject. And I, I mean, the reality is you can do that almost when you're dealing with 1600 ISO. If you get a good, clean 1600 ISO that looks as good as 200 or or you know or whatever. I mean, when we're looking at that, uh, you get to a point where who cares? You know, I mean, you, yeah. you just need a little bit of light, um, and, and that's a bounce card. That's a you know, that's a you know, lots and lots of little things, um, which we're not. I think that's key. That's that's definitely key because Ron, like you're saying, if you were shooting, a, you're in a portrait photography situation or shooting models, having light, even continuous light, blasting on that subject for extended periods of time, even if it's not hot, if it's cool light. Um, they're gonna they're gonna get fatigued and squint and you know mess up the photos. Mm. So, but if it's a dimmer light that just is sort of there, like almost incandescent room lighting um, that you can control, I think that's that's much more the way to go. Yeah, it gives you it gives you more nuance, and and I, I yeah, yeah. I, I just I, it's a matter of you know just a few more years, I think. Yeah. Well, and, and even now, I mean, when if we're not worried about chasing focus, uh, you know, for, for us. A one by one light panel, along with maybe a micro pro, um, are the two the two things that we'll take on a in a flyaway kit. That is just going to be this you know the the key and the fill, and we might take a little another little micro pro for the hair. And if if we open up the camera, we it's fine. The big challenge, of course, is always just making sure that we're not. Um, you know, chasing focus. You know, it depends on what you're doing with the interview. Obviously, it's great to have short depth of field, but if it gets too short, the person moves their chair, and suddenly the, you got a whole interview that's out of focus. Yeah. Well, I mean, we might be keying up for another battle. You know, with the what was it a couple of years ago? It was raw. You know, JPEG versus raw. Then it was, or before that, it was film versus digital. Then JPEG versus raw. Then now the still and video wars between the convergence thing, and now coming up, it's going to be strobe, strobe versus continuous lighting. You know what they say? It's always something. It's always something. You know, Scott Bourne will sell all of his strobes and buy continuous lighting. I, speaking, I predict it. Speaking of, Scott, just, speaking of Scott, just to circle back, someone posted in the uh, forums that one of the things that Scott brought up, was, which was a good point on his blog about the D3S, is that... Um, 
is that the you know they're using motion JPEG instead of H.264 to do the compression. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That may increase the compatibility. I'm not really sure what their thought process is there. It may increase the compatibility, but the compression most likely will not be as efficient as the H.264, which means that at the same um, at the same bit rate. Uh, you may end up with a lower quality image, which is is also you, you may end up with uh, not any better, but that might be one of the reasons they went down to 720 as well. It's also a lot less to compress it, which would save the money on the compression in the camera. So the the, the chipset that's required to go to motion JPEG would be less expensive uh, and lower power than the chipset required for the H.264. Uh, but the the issue that you give up once again is some of the quality. Mm. So you can the average consumer, the non-Alex consumer can show can see side by side, you know, something shot it or compressed with motion JPEG versus another compression ratio. You can tell the difference. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, what happens? What you'll see Sometimes. is macro blocking. So you'll you'll you know you may not know what you're looking at, but uh, if you if you know what you're looking at, um, that that you'll you'll look for macro blocking, which are blocks that are larger than a pixel, um, mm-hmm. and and that usually happens in low contrast areas, uh, in areas that have very a lot of similar colors. Um, you'll see it just kind of try to group them together. Um, now, you know, H.264 is more efficient at that, uh, but, um, you know, and, and it doesn't do it as often. Uh, when you get in, you know, these older compression technologies uh, tend to be a little bit more large bucket um, approaches to the, to the issue. And Ron might be able to speak to it a little bit more intelligently. Well, it's the same thing I was saying earlier, that you just can't, you can't look at one set of numbers or even one set of technologies and assume that it, you can make a valid comparison without just looking at the images because, you know, there's different settings on, on these different compressors as well. And, and as Alex says, there's different situations like low light where they, the problems tend to come out. So I think, you know, DP Review does a great job of comparing uh, sort of the image quality coming out of cameras when they do their in-depth camera tests. And I don't think they've taken it to the level yet of comparing uh, the video shot, and it gets really hard because there's so many different variables, but uh, I just encourage anybody that's really trying to get their head around what's the best quality is you've you got to go to what does the image look like ultimately. Well, one of the things that we're going to do uh, in the near future, when, when my, uh, in December, we're going to do a whole bunch of camera tests. We, we're going to try to do them earlier than that, but right now, uh, it looks like December. And one of the things that we're going to be doing is pulling the HDMI stream out of some of these cameras and then doing mm-hmm. a difference mat you know, basically differencing them to the to the footage that they're capturing themselves um, to just show people what the difference is. You know, what what are yeah. you losing in the compression? Because if it's purely black, it means you're losing nothing, um, and that won't happen. Yeah, right. All right. Also in the news, uh, the governor has signed into law a new anti paparazzi law. And what is it saying? It said they will fine or we're going to California is going to fine paparazzi for taking photos that invade a celebrity's right to privacy. I applaud uh, that. Yeah. Is that enforceable, you think? It's going to keep people off my lawn. You know, it's been a real problem here. <laughs> people, like, they're just, they're just building up outside my lawn and taking pictures of the kids, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, you said they built that balloon, you. Alex. What, what was with the balloon thing? <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Ron? Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, and having fun hanging out in your lawn, Alex. But... <laughs> I think this is, uh, whether it's enforceable or not, I think I think it's a good thing. Obviously, there's that slippery slope, and I almost hate to use that term, but, you know, you're, you're balancing free speech with somebody's right to privacy. And, and at some level, it's going to be a whole lot of judgment calls about whether or not this was uh, an intrusion in a right to privacy or if it's just a, a free speech sort of a uh, news capturing photo kind of thing. But generally, so in, your, you know, your, in your opinion, what would be an egregious sort of breaking of this law 
you know what what is what is what is invading a, a celebrity's right to privacy you taking a picture of them getting dressed through their window from across the street yeah or? Well, obviously i think and you know i'm no lawyer so obviously i'm just talking out on my ass basically but i think there's uh you know there, there's this uh, sense of expectation of privacy uh, and it's the same thing for even for legal issues of you know the police monitoring you i think or government monitoring you but uh, obviously something that invades their home is is uh way beyond the line but you know the real question comes if somebody if a celebrity is out getting an ice cream cone at a public place uh, and somebody snaps a photo of them uh, you know is that is that crossing the line and i don't i don't know i mean it's it's a real tough call you know and and, and the question is if somebody if the paparazzi comes up and is in your face taking those photos versus taking the photos from across the street with the long lens so it's it's i think it's good to acknowledge this but i really do think this just is going to be a huge uh case by case scenario where somebody's going to have to sit down and figure out, you know, does that cross that line or not? It's going to spend a lot of time in courts, I suspect. I think what about what about Alex, what about celebrities though? I mean, they're like they said the 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 what I'm reading here in the notes it says they're going to they're going to find paparazzi for taking photos that invade a celebrity's right to privacy. What about my rights? I'm not a celebrity, you know. <laughs> do they get fined if they inv- invade well, my they rights do. as the they- average citizen or just celebrities? And how do you define celebrity? Well, I think that they they already do. If they're, you know, I think that the um, uh, if they break into your, a lot of times celebrities have less rights than we do um, when it comes to that because they're a well known figure and so on and so forth. If they take pictures of you on private, like for instance, if if a, if a photographer takes picture on, on private property and doesn't have the rights to take that, it it, it can be very complicated for them. Uh, with a celebrity, that hasn't been the case uh, oftentimes, and so there's there's a lot less. And I think that also, I you know, just like you can't yell fire in a th- in a movie theater i think that there's a lot of safety issues i mean uh you know we when we look at um you know princess diana when we look at yeah. a lot of the stuff that's gone on in la where, where cars are getting chased by paparazzi uh you know i think that those are um those i think they should be those photographers should be prosecuted at the fullest extent of the law and i don't there is no limit to what i'd be as a jury as a jury member there's no there, you know i would just want to know how many years but that's endangering the safety of others. But what if it's innocuous and it's just sort of being a peeping Tom kind of thing? Again, if I was on the jury, and this is why they would <laughs> never put me on a jury of these, is I would just ask, how many years are we allowed to put them away? <laughs> you know, this is the, there's no, I don't believe there's any redeeming social um, uh, value to, you know, these little twips. You know, you know, and so, so the, uh, I was going to say something else. <laughs> you said twerps. So, you said so the, then you. twerps is what I, what oh, we're twerps, about. Okay. So the, uh, I don't think there's any social redeeming value for them. Um, if you put me on a jury on that, I would once again ask how many years can I stick them away? Uh, and I think what it does is the, the, this law probably just gives the legal system a little bit more ability uh, to enforce or, or bring down penalties that, you know, were probably harder to do. When uh, the defender could argue it was some sort of uh, you know right to free speech, so I think you know I think it's probably a good thing. I just am curious to see how well it's going to be used when push comes to shove. And right now, yeah. by the way, someone pointed out in the in the forums that it is a fine, not a um, uh, not a prison term, which is unfortunate. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then what that means is it just becomes another economic decision that somebody will make of you know, am I willing to risk the fine because I know I can sell the photo for more money than what I'll be fined. Right. right, but it also says the law also targets media outlets who purchase the photos. So, you know, cut it off at the source. Yeah, yeah. which I think is cool. great. Yep. Yeah, I agree. All right, last week's poll was, uh, hey, Ron, you want to take us through the poll? 
Sure. Uh, the question uh, was HDR, love it or leave it. And it was sort of a question about what's your feeling on, on using HDRs in photography. Uh, the responses, potential responses were, I like my HDR, HDRs to be arty and surrealistic. Yet uh, 24% of the people agreed with that. I wasn't one of them. Uh, the next one was even further out. To me, it's not HDR unless it's totally over the top. We only had about 1% that said they like that. Uh, and then the biggest response, HDR only works for me when it looks real. About 58% uh, agreed with that. Uh, and then there's another 18% or so that said they had no opinion. I mean, I've, I... I kind of am on that line between uh, I want it to look real, but I don't necessarily have a problem with it getting uh, artsy and surrealistic if that's what you're going for. The problem is, you know, the, the whole point of art is not to be uh, derivative. And at this point, most HDR stuff that goes over the top really is the same stuff, right? You're just applying these same settings that everybody else is doing, and you get this look, and it's, it's sort of come and gone. So I don't know a problem yeah. with using it to produce something that's not necessarily realistic looking, but I don't, I do have a problem with it just looking like every other HDR photo out there now. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a missing answer from this. Uh, and that would be, it depends because if you're like, like you said, if you're creating art, that's one thing. And if you're an architectural photographer, that's, that's trying to take a picture of a building to show interior lighting and exterior lighting and the sunset and everything together over this entire range. And you're using HDR to sort of, give it a hyper real uh, look or something more akin to what you would see if you were looking at it with your bare eyes, but only slightly better. Um, it's different. So, you know, I think it's, it's a case by case thing. You know, it's mm -hmm. not a, you can't say I, I love HDR. I hate it. It's a tool. It's like saying I well, love hammers. Exactly it. I love HDR. hammers when I, when they build houses, but I hate them when they, when they build something else, you know, it's yeah, different. And that's, the, that's exactly the issue here is that HDR is being used as a term for a look. And really, HDR should just be viewed as a as a you know a technology that uh, can be can be tweaked to generate a look in a variety of different ways. Yep. Well, um, next week's poll, we're still deciding on what the content of that's going to be, but still, head over to twiplog.com to uh, find out what that's going to be. Then we'll have that up shortly. And also, this week's and before we jump to the guest. This week's, this week's, no, go ahead. Uh, before we jump to the guest, I, I actually think that we, um, in our notes, I think we didn't put in our second uh, thank you, which is to audible.com. Audible. And, uh, and Audible. so we want to make sure to thank, uh, thank Audible. Uh, Audible, of course, uh, has over 50,000 titles to choose from that you can download uh, anywhere. And, uh, you know, you can play them back. You can play them back on your iPod. Uh, you can play them back on your computer. Uh, it's, it's really the way, it's the way I like to read books. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, and if you want to get try this out, uh, if you haven't, I mean, I don't know how many times you, you hear this. And so if you haven't, I, I don't know what you're doing. But if you haven't, go up to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. Uh, once again, audiblepodcast.com slash twip. Get a free book. Uh, if you're looking for an idea, hold on, I have a, uh, uh, are you guys listening to anything lately? Have you been, I just started listening to Blink, which is sort of an oldie, but I never had a goodie but oldie. Before the, yeah, the Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, yeah, book. and I'm, I'm and I gotta say, by the way, to, I have to say, I'm re-listening to Four Hour Work Week, Alex. It's uh, my my inspirational thing. Yeah, I will say about the Four Hour Work Week is that it, the first two thirds in audio are just perfect, and then then he starts actually getting you to do workbook kind of exercises in it. All right, and then I just move and on. the URLs. You know, whoever read that needs to not read entire long URLs right. explicitly. Right. Yeah. So the um, uh, but it is um, uh, you know, my my thing now is that I don't even I saw I saw a book and I'm just looking for it right now on my um, 
And it was funny because I saw the book advertised on, um, uh, and I don't think I've downloaded it all yet. Um, I saw the book advertised on Amazon as a Kindle book. And of course, my, my immediate reaction was to find it as a, is it, is it available on, the, on Audible? And, and, mm-hmm. and great books like Mal- Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, uh, The 4-Hour Workweek, those are just fantastic books because you can play them in the background. It's, it's great. You can kind of add it. They're not, they, for me, sometimes I feel like if I was actually reading it, uh, I'd be wasting time. So. Yeah, you know the only the only problem I have with c- consuming books digitally is been has been lately because I've been traveling a lot, and when they tell you to turn off your electronic devices on the plane and you're in the middle of something, it gets in the way when everybody else is reading their little book, you know. And I had to stop reading my high tech device. You I know? have, I have, even my, though it takes no power, you know. I have, um, I, I, what I do is my my standard operating procedure is a high is one high tech device with Audible plus Wired and The Economist. You just wa- I just wander around with those. And those are the Wired and The Economist are on the way up and on the way down, and the Audible's everything in between. Very cool. Look anyway, so if you're interested in Audible, once again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. Uh, it is a free book if you haven't done it before. And if you haven't done it before, you're crazy. All right. Crazy. Who, hey, are we, who are we talking to this week? Can, can I intro the guest now? Can, is that okay? I'm going to intro the guest. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> All right, our guest in this episode is Mr. Chris Orwig. He's at once a photographer, an author, a speaker, designer, as well as being a key faculty member at Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara, California. In this interview, Chris talks about how he's able to stay both positive and creative. Chris Orwig is an artist, period. On the bio page of his website, there's a phrase, photography is savoring life at one one one-hundredth of a second. And that one line, I think, really describes Chris well. He's dedicated his life to the creative arts and helping others realize the artists within themselves. He's a photographer. He's an author, speaker, designer, as well as being a key faculty member at Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara. Chris has authored many books, including his latest, Visual Poetry, a creative guide for making engaging photographs. Chris Orwick, welcome to This Week in Photography. Thanks. It's a treat to be here. Now, the, the treat is all ours. So um, you, you have a unique position uh, in terms of being an educator uh, with one foot in the brick-and-mortar world as well as another foot in sort of the online e-learning world with you know, yeah. on, online titles as well. And then you know, if there was an, another leg, you'd have that one in publishing as well because you, you're a published author with several books out there. My question for the, for the, the audience would be for the photographers, the, the advanced amateurs that want to kick their art to the next level and maybe go pro, what should they do? Should they, should they go enroll in Brooks? Should they go buy a subscription to an online e-learning site or should they just go buy your book? What's the right path? <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, that's a, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, maybe, um, stepping back and then answering that a little bit first is kind of stepping back for me, education, I think a lot of this uh, one guy, this quote hit me once I, I read it by William Yeats, which he said that education is not about filling a pail, it's about lighting a fire. Yeah. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, that's it. You know, because 
it's more than just information because there's plenty of information out there, say with whatever topic, um, how to shoot macro photography, how to do something in Photoshop. The, the information's there, but it's finding the source that really captivates you, that incites you, that excites you, that motivates you, that moves you, that, that, that gets you going. And one of the things that I've discovered is that that takes on many shapes and forms at different times in life. Um, say the brick and mortar context, I mean, when you can, when you have the luxury of um, going to school for a handful of years and it's intense and it's focused, uh, there's huge reward. Um, it's immense. At the same time, though, um, there are some students that's kind of interesting who are too well trained. Um, and this happens to us in the online context as well. I'll hit that in a second. But we have too much information and maybe not enough doing something. And that can happen in, in a school or even, you know, I, I know some photographers who spend so much time reading blogs or watching videos or books or all this stuff that they don't, don't actually do the work of the photographer or, or what have you. So anyway, I think it's kind of finding the mix of all of these different sources um, and Maybe if it's like being an athlete, it's that cross training where we all need the high intensity, you know, workout, so to speak, of a workshop, or we need that regular, just, you know, exercise day to day that we can get online. Or there are other times where we say, you know what, I'm going for a complete life change. I'm going to commit a, a, a series of years to, to something. So I don't know if it's an answer of either or. Um, so it sounds, a- it sounds like it's a blend of everything. You don't want to become a professional student and never get out there and take pictures. Uh, yeah. So in, in it, for me, in my my you know, I think it's, and it's different for everybody. I'd say like me, sure. per, for me personally, I learn better. I mean, I like a combination of those things, but I, I think I learn better like looking at books at my own leisure and, yeah. and just sort of thumbing through them and just, you know, writing in the margins and putting putting yellow stickies in there. Um, and then also, um, I love the online stuff too. I love to be able to sit in with a, with a glass of wine in front of my computer and watch and listen to somebody who knows vast, vastly more than I do explain a concept about photography and inspire me. So right, it's, it's, right. It's, I think it's different for each person. So you, the students in your class um, at Brooks, what, yeah. what, kind of, what kind of things do you push them through? Like, like take me through it. I'm a, I'm a new kid. I come in there. Um, and I'm, I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I'm ready to, to make a career out of photography. What's the first thing you tell them um, as an instructor to, to be mindful of? Yeah, that's a good, good question. Um, it kind of depends on, on where they are in the program. Our, the school where I teach is about three and a half years because um, they do it year-round. And um, so at the different stages, there's different messages. But I think one of the things – that I try to get across, and, and I hope hope I, I accomplish this, is helping them to realize that whatever it is, let's just say like a Photoshop class, that the point isn't Photoshop. And that th- there's this, what you're trying to do is learn this tool so that you can have style or you can communicate so that there's poignancy, that your images are compelling, engaging, and and that you almost are learning something so that you can create content that transcends the subject matter. Even if you're, let's say, um, let's say, this made sense to me once I was, I was on the, um, 
I was visiting this friend who's who's a movie producer. And he's produced X Men and all all these movies. And I was on the Planet of the Apes set, and we were talking about movies. And he said, you know, in order for this movie Planet of the Apes to be uh, a hit, it has to transcend its genre of the sci fi, you know, kind of space. And if it's yeah. only interested interesting to people who like sci fi stuff, it won't be a blockbuster. And when he said that, I was like, that that really makes sense. Even the best photographs. It may be of a person that you don't really like, or it may be of a subject matter you don't, but it just connects with you. And so I think that's one of the things is to learn or to try to discover that, you know, to discover um, what that is. And then the other side of it, I think, is really getting down to what are you passionate about because that makes all the difference in the world. And um, if you can identify some of those things it just shows i mean yeah. like for example like when you say when you identify what you're passionate about for example you know you're if you're you like monster trucks you should be sure. shooting that kind of thing yeah yeah i think so um and, and you should um yeah and and maybe an angle of monster trucks like what is it you know i guess it's you know i heard a colleague say this that with in regards to our students that he said you know a student has arrived when they can say this photograph is good or bad and why because anyone can say I don't like that but it's like yeah this monster truck shot is amazing and here's why and so it's that mm-hmm. it's that kind of digging a little bit deeper I- into what's going on there and then also even just approaching stuff um, th- there's another quote that meant a lot to me when I when I heard it by the, an author Anne Lamott but she said you can do brickwork as an artisan or a laborer and it's the same job it just depends on how you want to do it and the laborer kind of sweats and toils and we all know what that work looks like but then the artisan they actually work harder than the laborer yet it's it's this weird dichotomy that or, or paradox maybe that while they work harder it's actually not as hard because they're mm-hmm. so into it and then the end result shows and so I think part of that is figuring out that you know in school as a teacher or, or the subject matter, like those things matter, but really it's what are you going to do with them and who are you in that context and how can you bring something to the table and then how can you ultimately even develop a sense of style that's unique to who you are? How can you have perhaps a vision that, that's that's one of a kind? And part of the trick isn't just learning the technique. I mean, that's a huge aspect of it, but then it's uh, maybe even adding a little bit more and that's kind of where the magic magic happens yeah so you you know you personally you know chris orwig when you what gets you jazzed um for uh, about being an educator because you you know you're touching many aspects of it from speaking to the you know the classroom to virtual and cyberspace how what gets you going about about spreading knowledge yeah that's a fun question um and i think one of the truths all teachers know whatever type of teaching you do is that the teacher learns the most and so I I like it because I'm constantly learning and all these students who will do these projects and I'll say, how the heck did you come up with that? And they say, I don't know, you know, I just did it. And students don't know the rules, so they, they break them without knowing they're breaking them. And there's an immense amount of creativity um, that happens there. So that's really exciting. And again, I'm constantly learning from, from that context. Then also it's it's really fun to be you know a small part of of their whole life trajectory and you get those 
emails or, or whatnot. Or I was talking with uh, one of my past students today who his dream was to become a surf photographer. And, and uh, just last night there was this um, event. It's called the Surfer Pole Awards. And it's this annual. It's kind of the Grammys for surfers, let's say, surf, the surfing world. And anyway, he called me and he said, Chris, I got the, the photo of the year. So in the surf world, his photo was voted, you know, the best photo of the year. Awesome. And, and he was just so excited, and I was so excited, and we were hooting and hollering, and we couldn't believe it. And he's just a couple years out of school, you know, and he's just doing really well. And, and, and whenever we talk, we always say, you know, I can't believe that we actually get to do this and we get paid to do stuff like this, you know. <laughs> and so just sharing that. And, and you, know, our, you know, students in all contexts go do so many different um, things and so it really broadens and deepens I think who I am and how I see the world whether it's a student who's passionate about a, a social issue or someone who likes a sport or fashion or who knows what so um, it's kind of a long answer but um, I think it's uh, it's exciting in that sense you know yeah. that to, to get to to kind of partner with people and I, I always figure education is it is an honor because there's a choice you know you can choose to learn different things and so uh for me it's uh i really enjoy it you know yeah. i guess that's part of part of kind of the deal now now being so busy with all this other stuff you know with the, with the education stuff and you're you know i know you're going to be at, at different conferences this year all this stuff sure. when do you find time to shoot and what <laughs> what do you shoot yeah um yeah, I think uh, – I, I mean I, I kind of – for me, that this will sound kind of well, – I don't know how it will sound. But um, <laughs> I, as I was just thinking about it, I was thinking it's, for me, photography is a little bit of lifestyle. I, I didn't – you know, there's, there's kind of – there's a couple different approaches and they all work well. But some people, you know, kind of say, well, I like photography. Therefore, I'll do whatever I need to do in regards to my lifestyle to make photography happen. Mm -hmm. And I kind of did the opposite. I said, well – I want to have a really cool lifestyle, and there's certain things that I value and like to do and whatnot. And then it was like, gosh, photography is such a great way to be able to do those things. And so, um, you know, that quote that you said, which I, I do really like that quote a lot, that photography is savoring life, that somehow it's, you know, I get more out of life with camera in hand. I notice things differently. And so shooting, it's kind of funny. It's not something I necessarily do and and don't do or start and stop it's more just it's kind of like um i don't know maybe like i remember in college you know you just bike to class and mm -hmm. that's just what you do and it's like well when do you go bike and it's like well when do i i just i don't know i just i, I do it so anyway long part, story part of your dna right yeah yeah it is and it's not that i have to do it i mean there's you know there's great uh, truth to the wisdom which says you know set the camera down and observe and you know I have young kids and you can't wrestle kids with a camera in hand sometimes you got to get rid of it and, and <laughs> wrestle and have fun yeah. but it's it's it can be sitting around you know when you're catching your breath and then you look up at the trees and you see the sunlight sparkle in the leaves and snap a few frames um, so yeah. I think that's kind of been my approach is you know how do I how do I include this in the mix of life? Yeah. How do you – so the, this kind of the photographic stream of consciousness when you're, you're, always, sure. you're always thinking about shooting and, you know, it's just sort of part of who you are. 
How does that work in with today's technologies like the iPhone and all that? Do you find yourself uh, – I'm not sure if you have one or not. but Sure, yeah, yeah. Do, do you find yourself shooting more with the iPhone camera since it's always in your pocket? Or, or do you reach for the larger, uh, higher-resolution camera? Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I like what you know. Chase Jarvis, I think, kind of coined the term, or, or most recently, he's been saying it a lot. But the best camera is the one you have with you, and he does a ton with the iPhone. That's just amazing. But um, yeah, so I shoot a lot with that, or um, sometimes it means bringing a plastic camera with me because those are really simple, no batteries, <laughs> you know, no compact flash cards, and yep. if you break it, it doesn't matter. Um, or, or old cameras, or you know, I I'll, I'll shoot with different things or a wooden camera I have that I, I really like a you know so different formats so yeah I think the the um, it's fun to have different different cameras so it can be integrated into the mix even you know it's kind of funny everyone thinks like you got to have this really great gear and all this stuff and you do but when you have really good gear you're less likely to bring it to the sand dunes yes because it's going to get wrecked but if you have gear that you know if it gets damaged it's not the end of the world you have a lot of fun with that gear yeah. and so there's something to be said for that even hanging on to you know old point and shoots or different things um th- there's a ton of fun you can have with with a lot of different types of gear yeah that's that's great i mean that it what i you know, i had chase jarvis on the show a while back i i interviewed him and okay you know his his it, one of the catchphrases that he coined is the the best camera is the one that you have with you, you know. So and it's and most people typically typically at least lately have a camera phone with them and sure with these new camera phones you can make some amazing photos with them. So yeah, it's it's I I, I totally agree with you and I also another thing that I just keyed in on what you just said. Um, and I preach this a lot on the show is like people get so tied up with gear and I got to get this latest body and the latest lens. And then once I have this, this trifecta of gear, strobe body and, and lens, I'll be a good right. photographer when right, it's, right. and it's almost the opposite. It is, you should be able to call yourself a photographer and shoot with whatever you have at hand. Kind of like James, right. like James Bond, right? James Bond, sure, sure, sure. John, he doesn't wait for the perfect uh, weapon to fight his enemies. You know, he could grab right. anything in the room and fight with a lampshade if he needs to. You know, he's yep, still, still yep. James Bond. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, exactly. So, exactly. so talk a little bit about the curriculum at at Brooks. I just had a, a, wanted to bring it back to that just for a, sure. a minute. Um, lots of changes in photography. Like we we're just talking about iPhone uh, and, and digital stuff, or not digital, but. Um, uh, being able to transmit images from wherever you are with sure. with, a, with a with a phone camera or a camera phone, um, or being able to take video with some of the new digital SLRs, sure, um, sure, and and that the whole rage of the shallow depth of field and the luscious sort of images that you can and video and moving images that you can get with that, and then yeah. Flickr, of course, now adding video, Smug Mug with their high definition video. Is yeah. is Brooks looking at that and adding that to the curriculum that the next generation of photographers are going to be able to master? Yeah, you know it's funny. Um, they they've had um, w- well, maybe first of all, I mean it's a huge honor for me to be at Brooks. I feel like I get to bum around with these people who are just hands down inspiring. And w- there's been someone at Brooks who's been pushing video for years and years, and it's been part of the curriculum, you know 
I don't know how far it goes back, but really far. And actually, out of that, it birthed a film program. And we have a full um, on film, uh, um, you know, uh, video production and film program. But anyway, still, our still photographers are um, are trained how to do video because of the ways those have been converging for a long time, and now you know that's that's happening in full force. And it, and it is exciting to see that. It's exciting to see. Um, how people are learning to think and work and operate and create in that space it's uh it's a really kind of fun time for that so yes yeah, yeah. so the curriculum has some of that and, the, and it's interesting because i mean the uh one of the things you know that i think always happens is you know whenever you think about learning something it's really exciting but then you get to it and it's more difficult than you imagine you know whatever it is um and brooks i think is that too the first year of the school is it's brutal it's so tough and um it's a lot of really technical stuff it's the base and you know we have the the highest rate of dropouts is right after year one. Oh, wow. but if the students make it past that then they go on to do such amazing things. And I think of that kind of as a metaphor for anyone, really, because it is it is like that. You know, first you have the passion. You're like, yeah, I want to make these pictures. Or you start to learn a few things and you get excited. And then there's this time where you're, you you kind of have to step it up. Um, almost maybe it's like if you haven't exercised for a few years and you start running again. The first few weeks are not fun or, you know, first month is horrible. Yeah. But but then you get you know the runners higher whatever it is and and you kind of get into that rhythm and you realize, gosh okay it was worth it to push through that so anyway you know Brooks has a bit of of that in the mix as yeah. well and well I guess I guess that will probably act as almost a as a Darwinian filter yeah <laughs> well, yeah it right? does it does so, so if you really 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 want this then you'll make yep. it, you'll push through and make it. So. Yeah, yeah. And the ones that do, I mean, it, it's unreal. It pays off for them. So. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your beginning. So how did, how did you, what, what bit you? You know, I always, my, my phrase is always, how did, what was the radioactive spider that bit you to turn you into a photographer? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, so uh, for me, um, it, it's kind of funny, but I, I trace it all back to being a kid. And my mom is an artist, and and I grew up in a home my dad built. So it's in this creative context. And my mom used to tell my brother, sister, and I that there was no such thing as bad art. And um, she lied to us, basically. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, as a kid, that was this truth we needed to hear. And um, it was one of those weird lie truths, right? Because basically what it said was, it's okay to experiment, and it's okay if if you're – you know, she would bring home a pottery wheel and we'd try to make something. If it didn't turn out, that's okay. That The goal isn't um, perfection. It's it's creativity. It's process. It's learning. It's growth. You know, all those things. Um, and so even to this day, I, I hold on to that lie as one of my biggest truths. Because the funny thing about photography, too, is people think, you know, you arrive – or, or you get to this certain level, but it's a it's a medium of experimentation, and the 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 better you get, the more challenging it is to make more mistakes and to push harder and, and to and to do those things. So anyway, that was a big thing for me. And then my dad, um, you know, he taught me a lot about physical space and light, and the, even the windows in our home and the, and those things, and that kind of. You know, that bit me a little bit and some of his early black and white photos yeah. that I would look at in the attic, you know, one of those things. And then um, kind of kind of grew from there. Um, and and uh, 
there are a bunch of other little things along the way, but really I trace it back to that. And uh, so I'm kind of grateful, you know, to mom and dad for for um, for that context. And that's one of the fun things I think that we can do for each other, not just as you know parents to your kids, but as friends. You know, people, certain friends cultivate these things. I don't know, you know, you hang out with someone. And they 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 kind of give you these different ideas, and that's to me one of the most exciting things about photography now is there's such a sense of community. Whether it is you know in Flickr and sharing and comments or these different you know sharing sites or or, or schools or workshops or whatever, there's a such a there's such a sense of openness, and there's just there's like this new space out there to yeah. create and to grow and and to make mistakes you know yeah. and and to do that with other folks i mean because i think that's that's what makes it you know is um is that kind of sharing or shows like this you know it's, it's amazing to get to to just um hear what other people are thinking the I whole know. range it's so. totally you know I, I i interviewed earlier uh another photographer by the name of natalie debish and uh, she's she's very big on Flickr and uh, and outside of Flickr, and she's had multiple gallery shows. She's over across the pond there, and uh, it, the interesting thing is, you know, I was looking at her Flickr stream, which is amazing, and she has, you know, on average fifty thousand views on each image. So wow. <laughs> you know, so that you know was just it was just sort of an illustration, and she's only been shooting since two thousand six. Sure. So, sure. Yeah. So it it was sort of an illustration of uh, the power of the medium, the power of and where we've come. You know, if you yeah. rewind yeah. back two decades, there's no way fifty thousand people would have ever seen you know one of her prints in her lifetime, probably. And, yeah. And now look at what happened. So what? How do? You, how do? You, how are you embracing this whole social media change with the flickers and the twitters and the facebooks and all that stuff? Um, I think I mean it makes me think of um, one of the things that John Sexton I heard him say once that um, he said I'll always you know he he's an amazing black and white photographer just you know one of the legends living legends but anyway he said I, I will always be an amateur photographer in the true sense of the word even though I get paid to make pictures yeah. and I and the reason I say that is because I think and, and amateur you know it's this French word which which comes from the the root word love and it's just someone who does something because they love it and I think the new space you know like like the the uh, photographer you just mentioned I mean you know there's exposure that she's getting and, and growth and shows and all these amazing things and it's really coming out of her love for photography and I think there's this new paradigm shift like in the past it used to be everyone was like kind of striving to be the pro and now it's maybe flip-flopping that the space that's almost even better is the one who is is doing this for the love of it yeah. and and that doesn't mean the pro can't do it I mean you take you know anything let's say like the Vincent Laferay thing with all the 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 five D video stuff. I oh, mean, oh yeah, reverie. There, there was, yeah, exactly. There's so much passion in that that project, you know. And it was it seemed so much fun, you know. And obviously there there's professional focus and, and intention there and all that stuff. But it's those things that are captivating people. And I think the thing that excites me about that is that, you know, it, it's it's there's more space for more people i guess it's not a pyramid you know it's not like oh that you got to fight people for the top monk you know mm -hmm. knock someone else off so you can have your space but it's that there, there's there's plenty of room yeah and that's that's kind of fun so yeah so all those different ways of sharing and getting photos out there to me are are 
interesting, you know, and fascinating, and I, I enjoy them. So, speaking about your own work, where where did you find? I was looking at your stuff, you know, your Flickr stream and on your website, etc., and in this this book that we're going to talk about. Where sure. where do you find inspiration to to make the kind of unique? Chris Orwig look that you've that you have sure, sure. And, and and where can I get some of it <laughs> yeah yeah um, I love the uh, I mean the question of inspiration has always fascinated me and and uh, you know I know we'll talk about the book in a second but to just to you know a little you know thought about it is it, in the book I interviewed the all these different photographers and one of the questions I asked them is what inspires you and I love hearing you know where all this comes from right so so anyway um which I can talk about that more later but anyway what, for me a lot of my inspiration as funny as it sounds comes from literature and and what I mean by that is uh, people who write words impress me be, and, and, and inspire me because they're creating visual images of, of without images. Yeah. And, um, and and I've said this one before another place, but one week I read these two things, which was someone was talking about penguins, and once they described the penguin as the flightless bird, and then the other person described the penguin as the best dressed bird. <laughs> and I thought, you know, perfect. If I go and, sh- and photograph penguins, I have two photos. You know, the the best dressed is the penguin up on top of the iceberg, dancing around a little bit like Chaplin or something. And then the flightless bird, I'm a, I have a wide angle lens. I'm on my stomach. I'm right next to the to the penguin. He's and it's looking up at the sky at birds flying overhead, kind of longing, like wishing it could fly. You know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that um, that literature somehow just it it, uh, it gets my imagination going in some way um, so so I, I like to read and um, you know there are other lots of other sources but that's that's definitely one that comes to mind that's awesome so so then let's talk about the book a little bit it's called sure. visual poetry a creative guide for making engaging digital photographs um, where did it come from and why did, why did you write this book yeah, so you know, it's a huge privilege and treat to get to write a book. It's also kind of daunting, you know, a book on photography, in the sense that um, a lot's been said about photography, um, and so in thinking about it, for me, it was you know, say, okay, well, well, lots been said. What do I have to add to the conversation? You know, yeah. not necessarily re-say something or re-spin something that's been there. And so, for me, I kind of got to thinking about it and and flipping through some old journals and. There was uh, this, just this whole idea of, of poetry in the sense that poetry is a distillation. You know, you have this whole less is more thing going on, fewer words, and that what the uh, poet says, or what let's say what the novelist says in 20,000 words, the poet says in 20, and that when you read a poem, you not just you do not only have uh, more information, you have more experience, and that to me is what a good photograph is. It makes you feel, it moves you. It doesn't just doesn't just fill a pail it lights a fire you know and that um poetry for some people is kind of inaccessible and esoteric and so i mean i'm kind of think of it broader even like uh, song lyrics you know their 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 songs are only three minutes long which is really short and and i always think about that why is it that this three minute song can bring me back to being 16 years old you know and it's just like boom it, it 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 uh I like to think of it, you know, kind of like when the door to your heart is slammed shut and double bolted, locked, a song kind of sneaks in under the door jam and um, it has a way of then kind of bursting it open from the inside. And good photos do that. They 
they catch you off guard they disarm you somehow and they 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 make you change who you are how you think how you view the world and so anyway um you know in really thinking about that it got to be kind of fun to say okay well well that would be a wonderful way to approach it and uh kind of part creativity and part photography and how do you bring these uh these two things together yeah yeah so then, if just to close it off, what uh, what tips would you give to this weekend photography audience? These are, you know, most of the folks that listen are, of course, they love photography, or else they wouldn't be listening. Sure. But they're advanced amateurs or pros. You know, for the for the advanced amateur group and the people that are looking for good ways to get better at their craft, what what advice would you give them? Yeah, good question. That's a huge. That's a huge question. But um, yeah. I think uh, you know. I, this was funny. It was an, uh, this was a bit of advice one of my students gave me. I was learning how to use a new camera, and the student was teaching me, which was really fun. And I said, "Oh man, I just was really enjoying the process and whatnot." And I was trying to figure out what I was going to shoot next. And he said, "Chris, you got to just." You know, kind of going back to what something I said earlier, but he said, "Chris, you gotta just go out and shoot something you're passionate about." And again, it seems trite or simple or cliche, and and it wasn't like he was saying something new to me. But at that moment, when I was kind of had a blank slate, what do I do next? It, it made me think about something in a new way. And I think one of the, you know, if I were to leave with a tip, it would be just that: saying, "Okay, well, well what is it that?" That that I that matters to me, and maybe you know one little story here is let's say um, this is from another student, but you know he, he was a uh, he got really good at portrait photography, and he he wanted some good portraits of his family, and so he um, and th- this is a little bit of a sad story too, but he mm-hmm. went back to visit his family um, in uh, in South Africa on one of the breaks from school and. One of his plans was to take a photograph of his dad because it was his dad was such a meaningful person to him, and there's kind of a story behind that. But he went there, and then he came back, and one of his uh, students, his fellow students, said, "Hey, did you have a good time on your trip? Blah blah blah. And did you get a, a portrait of your dad?" And he said, "No. You know, it's kind of funny. I didn't. The light, the light was never right. It, it just it didn't really work out." And then. Um, a few weeks later, his dad had had died, and this uh, student was was just so he, he was so saddened by that, almost that he, he was kind of waiting for the situation to be right. And I think a lot of us do that. We wait, like if when I'm in New York, or if I after I take this workshop, or once I have this or that, or if only all these things. And and I share that story, you know, with permission. And and uh, I think he he even wants me to pass it on in order to just say you know the time is now and and it's figuring out what is it you know is it are you into your family well take portraits of your family like the best portraits is anyone has ever taken of 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 your family or of a family or if it's something else and begin to to start there and i think that those kind of things you know whenever you talk with someone who's passionate about something it leads to other people are passionate. It leads to other things, and then and it's snowballing. So um, I guess my my little closing tip would be: um, in the next week, even um, if you're at work and um, 
there's something at work you're passionate about. Like there's this one tree that you always go and, uh, you know, and, and take your break underneath. Photograph that tree. I mean, it means something to you. Or if it's, you know, you, you're, on your commute to work, you always drive by this one old building and you always think it looks so cool. And you always say one day you're going to stop. And you just love seeing that building every day because it has this bright blue wall with this yellow door. Tomorrow is the day to stop. You know, make that picture. And I think when photographers start to do that, other people get excited as well. And sometimes the excitement is subtle. It's nuance. Um, it, but but we can begin to pick up on that. And we want that um, because it, it has meaning and value. That's brilliant. Chris, thank you so much for taking time out today to uh, to chat with me and this week in photography audience about all this good stuff. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a ton for having me on the show. Um, as I mentioned, it's, it's a huge treat for me. So thanks for the questions. They get me thinking, and, and great to talk with you, Frederick. Excellent. That was Chris Orwig. He's a photographer, author, speaker, and educator. If you'd like to learn more about Chris and the stuff that he's talking about and passionate about, head over to his website at chrisorwig.com. That was Mr. Chris Orwig. If you'd like to learn more about Chris, check out the show notes for this episode over on twiplog.com. Also, you can check out peachpit.com. All right, let's let's take some listener questions. The first one is assigned to all of us, but particularly Mr. Ron Brinkman. You want to take that one, Ron? Sure. Um, listener named Mr. K. Goo says, as I understand, the photographer of an image is the person who pushes the shutter. However, what if I set up the tri- tripod, compose the shot, set the exposure, post-process the image, but I have someone else trip the shutter for me? Uh, where's the line drawn and about ownership of the photo? Um, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear. Most people would agree that the, the, the ownership of the photo is, is sort of the person that conceived it and set it up. Uh, the actual pressing of the shutter is not necessarily the thing that defines who took the picture early. And this is not any different than a lot of kind of art that's been generated over the ages. It's not at all common for, you know, famous artists going back to the Renaissance to have apprentices that did part of the work. Uh, but ultimately, it's sort of, like I said, it's, it's the vision. It's the, the person that conceived of what the image is going to look like that sort of I would consider to be the owner of it. What about uh, in what the eyes of the think? law, though? I'm, I'm thinking, like, legally. And if you're, if you're in court battling for rights of a, of a particular image or revenue generated from a particular image, and you can prove that you click the shutter even though you just roll out of bed and everyone else set it up, you know, who, who actually owns it? And, and what would the court say? Alex, what do you think? Um, so I, I think that if it's of you, I mean, that'd be the reason that you're doing it. You, you have kind of a dual s- situation here because if you haven't signed anything and they haven't signed anything, well, they, they might own the image, but you can't, they can't use it without you. Uh, the, um, uh, I don't know. I think that pulling it, if they're pushing the button, I think it would be complicated. I think if you're worried about it, there are two solutions. Uh, the first solution is to just sign something at the beginning with whoever is going to pull the trigger and, and that you own the images that come out of that camera. I mean, it, it, that's a simple, the simplest way to do this is just paper it up in some kind of basic contract that uh, basically says everything that you're, you're shooting today uh, or when you shoot with me, it belongs to me. Uh, you know, you can always stipulate those things um, uh, uh, in, in, in advance. The second thing is, is just remote fire the camera. I mean, if you're going through all the trouble of putting on a tripod and setting everything up, um, you know, I would just uh, have, a, have something that, you know, I could hit it and wait 10 seconds and let it go off. You know, I yeah. wouldn't necessarily need, uh, if I'm going through all that trouble to set it up. Yeah, on one camera DSL, DSLR remote. 
Right. I played with that. It's actually really cool. All right. Uh, before I go on to the next question, the name of that book that Chris Orwig um, was talking about is called Visual Poetry for those folks that are listening or watching on the video stream. Visual Poetry. And the next question is for me. It's from uh, listener Richard Madonna. He says, I've always shot in JPEG and imported an iPhoto. I've begun using Lightroom, but still like the library in iPhoto. I'd like to shoot RAW plus JPEG so I can get my JPEGs, but also capture the full RAW for editing later. iPhoto seems to import both photo formats, so, so my library will get huge. I'd like to import the JPEGs into iPhoto and the RAW into Lightroom. Does this make sense? How easily can I have this performed um, this preferred format each time. It's not easy uh, because each, each application is going to want to import separate. So what you're going to end up doing, uh, Richard, is just you're going to have two separate workflows. You're going to import a folder into iPhoto and import a folder into Lightroom. What you can do, however, is with both iPhoto and Lightroom, you can tell them not to bring the whole thing into their, their, their library. In other words, you can point them at a particular directory. So you can have two, three, whatever applications pointing to a particular, a single hierarchy of images and just work that way um, and have them. And when you do that, each application is going to save its, its own sort of recipe file separately for those raw files. So maybe that's a way to go just in the preferences for each one of those applications, like, for example, with Lightroom, when you go file import or import images from disk, there's a, pr a setting in there where you can say leave files uh, in place or leave the images in place and don't move them. Which that, and that's telling Lightroom not to move the images just to point to them. And you can do the same thing with iPhoto. So I would, I would suggest that. But, uh, you know, you, things may get a little hairy as you do one thing in one app and something else in the other. You guys have any other, any other suggestions around that? I think that's a wacky workflow <laughs> that he's yeah. trying to come up with. I, I, you know, I don't understand. Just, I'd say just shoot raw, and I mean, if you want to shoot JPEG as sort of a safety backup, I would just sort of toss them somewhere and not use them as long as there wasn't a problem with the raws. I mean, the way I work is I shoot the raws, and I will go ahead and process everything out to JPEG, so I sort of feel like I have uh, a processed equivalent of uh, what I shot on you know, my raw negative, if you will. Uh, and it just seems to make a lot more sense to me. You think of raw as your negative. You think of the JPEGs that are generated as your prints. And there's no reason, you know, these days, disk, disk space is so cheap. Just process everything that uh, starts out as raw and create a JPEG equivalent through your application of choice. Yep. All right, Alex, the next question is from Vito Amati, and it's assigned to you. All right. And uh, Vito asks, he says, do you think Canon will be able to add firmware, a firmware update that would allow the 5D Mark II to voice tag images? The, the 1D Mark III, as well as most of the other quote-unquote top-end cameras from Canon or Nikon have this feature. And since the 5D Mark II has the ability to record video with sound, it shouldn't be too difficult. I often take editorial photos at events that require me to caption people's names uh, for publication later. And uh, this feature would uh, be uh, such a great addition. I, they should put it in. I don't think they will. I, I, I you know, they, they might. Um, the firmware can definitely make that possible. Um, there's nothing about the technology. The camera has everything it needs um, to pull that off. And, and they, it really should have been in there. I'm sure that, that your need for it and why you want it is probably one of the reasons it's not there. Um, there's a lot of times there's feature set breakup to uh, have you cascade to a higher camera, higher price camera. Right. And that's my guess of why it's not there. There's no other good reason uh, that, that Canon hasn't put that in. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I know that's not probably not the answer that you, uh, 
that you wanted to hear. Uh, but I think that, you know, they could put it in. Uh, they should put it in. And I'm doubtful that they will put it in. All right. Good enough. Next question is for me. It's from Jason Kate. And uh, he essentially, without reading the whole thing, he wants to know, he's doing some traveling and he's trying to decide whether he should get the some average quality lenses or 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 use the same sort of average quality lenses that he has now for his d90 or go all out and purchase more exotic lenses um like a 24 to 72 8 which is not really that exotic or a prime 50 millimeter lens my suggestion would be uh to rent uh first before you make if you're with lenses and high-end gear like that are very critical purchases that are going to be with you for a long time, presumably. So it, it's relatively cheap to rent these lenses to try them out first and see how you like them and, and if, if they're what you were thinking that you were going to get. So I would just rent rent the lenses, especially if you're going on a short trip. You say you're going to uh, somewhere for three days. Um, just rent them and rent them for four days and try them out. Play with three or four of these lenses and then maybe purchase the one that you that works out the best for you after the trip and then you have the best of both worlds and you're uh, you can be confident in your purchase cuz you know exactly what you get you're going to get when it shows up i com- you know i just want to say I, I completely agree with that that is a and this is a general operating procedure for us is that we if we can't get exactly what we need we rent it uh, we don't buy something kind of halfway in between uh, because you know if, if it's not going to really solve our problem uh, there are a lot of rental companies, whether it's lights or grip gear or cameras or lenses, all of that stuff, there's rental companies and you should find them in your area or you can use an, an online one that'll send them to you. Uh, but these are the best solutions if you're shooting every once in a while. If you're shooting all the time, then you want the high-end glass. Uh, you know, if, if, if you're really shooting all the time and you really need it, then then go get it. And, and I think that there are some, you know, like when you're looking at that 24 to 70, for instance, there are some in-betweens. For instance, uh, one of the guys at the office uh, has been uh, had worked a lot with the Sigma 24 to 70 or 7200, I guess, and really said that they, they found that the quality was very close to the, the Canon, you know, 2.8. And it's half the price. So those are the yeah. other things to kind of compare. But you can rent them and find out whether that really makes sense for you and whether that's really true. Yep. All right. Let's move on to the picks of the week. And it uh, looks like everybody has a pick, except I don't see Alex is in there. I so have let's a pick. Start. I just forgot to put it in. I just... <laughs> let's start with Ron so Alex can get his stuff all I got organized. Oh, I'm... <laughs> Ron, what's your pick of the week? My pick is a website called dealextreme.com. It's a uh, a source for all kinds of cheap, gadgety kind of stuff shipped to you directly from Hong Kong. And I saw this little cool electronic stuff that if you've ever been to Hong Kong and you walk around the street and you're like, why can't I get that? You can get it here. Uh, and specifically, the one thing I'm going to recommend, we've got a link to this we'll put on uh, the show notes, uh, is you can get these little tiny keychain LEDs uh, which are incredibly bright these days. And Deal Extreme has them for like five bucks. You can get 10 of these things. And I really recommend everybody just go order 10 of these and you clip one to your keychain and clip one to your tripod and you clip one to your camera uh, shoulder strap and stick a couple more in your camera bag. They're just really useful for, I've found, you know, when you're out somewhere and the lighting isn't very good and you can't read what the setting is on your camera or even just a little tiny bit of fill light or whatever. Uh, so for the five bucks it costs to get this, and I guess five bucks including free shipping, uh, go ahead and, and get one of those and just just have a bunch of them laying around. So there's always one handy with it, just a little bit of extra light. And there's all kinds of cool stuff on this website. It's just one of those things you'll go there and you'll be, oh, that's only four dollars. I'll take one of those, and you can get 
And you can buy little laser pens that they won't even ship to the U.S. because they're too bright. Uh, and a whole variety of other kind of cool stuff. I mean, you, you, you look through the site and you can understand why we were making that point earlier about how uh, continuous lighting and LED lighting is really the future. Because some of the stuff is getting so cheap. Uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if you're not going to see light panels show up on here at some point for really good prices too. And the other thing they do sell is they sell raw LED components, uh, the really ultra-bright LED technology. So if you're a do-it-yourself kind of guy, I bet you could build yourself a light panel for not too much money. Excellent. All right. And that's uh, what, DealExtreme.com? DealExtreme.com, yeah. Very cool. Alex, what's your pick? So uh, my pick, this is actually based on a conversation I was having with, uh, with um, someone this morning. They were asking me, uh, they're, they're talking about moving a lot of camera gear uh, on a plane, and uh, they were asking me for some advice. And we kind of have a, we're get, we're, we've kind of settled into for our gear, whether it's video or, or, or still, uh, a set pattern for how we um, travel. And one is that we usually have a camera backpack. I, I use the DR467, you know, which I've recommended before, the Kata uh, DR467, um, the one with the laptop insert. And, uh, and that's great. The second... Uh, the second bag that we tend to use, and we've really started to standardize, and this is my recommendation for this week, is the CaseCruiser.com. So it's not a certain bag. It's a company. Uh, now, if you go, um, these are mostly Pelican cases. So Pelican is kind of known for um, these hardcore, uh, airtight, water-hard uh, cases. And, and we have Pelican. They come in all sizes. And we, I, I use Pelican cases for my SD cards and for my compact flash cards, as well as for all of our cameras. When we have to move computers, uh, all of these things, we use Pelican cases for it. The problem with the Pelican case, of course, is that you ha- it has that picket, that plucking, you know, you get that, uh, the um, padding, then you kind of pluck out to be the right size, and then it leaves all kinds of little dust, and that gets in your camera. Well, Case Cruiser has lots and lots of these custom cases. So they're built for SLRs. They're built for video cameras. They're built for these different things. They've thought it all out. And we find that generally the, the solution they come up with is very, very close, 95% of what we would have done. And so it's a really great um, uh, solution. Uh, there's one that's basically based, I believe, on the 1520, which is about the biggest Pelican case that you can check. Not check. Um, that you can uh, carry on, uh, and so it's a hard case. If worse came to worse, if the if for some reason you couldn't get it on the flight, uh, you know it's a hard case with the right packing. You're going to be able to check it with as much ease as you're going to have about putting your electronics under the plane. And so, so those are the um, you know. And but I think that that mixture of those two bags is kind of the. Uh, the most you're going to be allowed to take onto a plane and uh, it, we really feel safe and they're really great because they a lot of them pop up with a handle that you can drag along um, they're great wheels and as I said these custom ones I mean we have everything from a, we have a really really big one that we can put our uh, a Mac Pro with a 30 inch monitor you know into this thing and then roll it along um, we have ones for the X3 X1s we have other ones for the still cameras for our sound equipment all of these things are all things that we um, you know kind of go through now I will say if you're going into another country um, these advertise that you have professional gear <laughs> so I mean and, and you said that, you know so you, you know when you when you have one of the, when you have a pelican case they are going to want to look at that because it's it is serious gear but it's serious because it makes sense um when you're dealing with a lot of this equipment so anyway that's my suggestion case cruiser uh, and that's uh, c r u z e r.com excellent uh 
And my pick of the week is sort of a carryover from what we were just talking about in terms of uh, renting lenses. And my pick is sort of an idea rather than a particular site, though lensrentals.com is one of the ones that comes to mind. Um, but you should definitely rent gear. I, I, uh, I did it this weekend, so I'm speaking is hot on my mind. And uh, I did a bunch of product photography this weekend and went out feverishly looking for soft boxes and stands and all this stuff to, to make sure I light it, I lit this product correctly and uh, ended up was going to drop several thousand dollars <laughs> on lighting gear for this one job, which was not paying a whole lot of money. So, uh, you know, I went to, you know, of all places, a brick and mortar store, which are these are, are great places for resources. Hey, still. so. It is so. I got to tell you, Alex, I went to Keeble and Shuckett Photography in Palo Alto. I know Scott had some interesting experiences there, but I went to their rental department. And a gentleman by the name of David Greider was the most helpful person I've ever spoken to at a brick and mortar store. I mean, this guy knew everything about every little piece of gear that they had for rent, how much it costs off the top of his head. You know, he, he broke down everything I need and said, oh, yeah, we can give you that. That's 40 bucks. You know, you can have it for two days, that kind of thing. And I left there. I went into the store thinking, OK, I'm going to buy a softbox and I'm going to have to jerry rig this and make this work. And I left with a complete studio setup with stands, a boom, um, lights, softbox, continuous lighting, all this stuff, weights and everything for 40 bucks, you know, and I kept it for two days and I got the shots. I did, you know, I spent the whole day Saturday shooting and I got everything done, which would have uh, definitely set me back a bunch. And it all it cost me was a trip from my house to the store, uh, picking up the stuff, 40 bucks and then bringing it back the next day or two days later. And that was it. So I would, definitely, I would definitely suggest if you're, you're a photographer and you don't have a lot of money, and you, you're only, or more importantly, if you're only going to use certain gear infrequently, you know, even if it's a battery, you know, a battery pack for your strobe that you know you're going to need it maybe once a month for a wedding or something like that, you don't need to drop the hundreds of dollars to buy it and have it sit in the closet. Just rent it, especially if you have someplace local that you can rent from. Go there and rent it. Otherwise, use services like lensrentals.com, and they'll ship it to you. It'll be sitting on your, you know, you go pick it up from FedEx, and, uh, you know, they give you the packaging to ship it back to them, and it's all good, you know. So definitely my eyes were opened from that experience. So definitely check that kind of stuff out. And uh, coming up, you know, actually Steve Simon wasn't able to join us on the show today, but I uh, wanted to give him a shout-out because he is going to be at Photo Plus Expo next week uh saturday uh, october 24th which is next saturday from 115 to 315 he's going to be giving a talk called 10 steps to becoming a great photographer so if you're going to be going to photo plus expo and want to give steve your support please head over to his session and say hello and i'm, I'm also going to be there i'll be there uh wor working in the data robotics booth so if you want to swing by and say hello to me i'll be over there doing the uh the booth thing and I think that's it for this episode of This Week in Photography, guys. That was a fun uh, one. It was really fun. Alex, where, where can people uh, find you as if? I'm on the Twitters. <laughs> <laughs> Alex is on the Twitters. And Ron Brinkman, where are you? Sure. Twitter me, Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N. And I am on Twitter as well at Frederick Van, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K-V-A-N. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. Oh, <laughs>